Unless you're a cop, your experience with forensics is probably through TV, watching shows like Bones, Law & Order, or CSI. Investigators are measuring bite marks or sending hair off for analysis, or maybe determining time of death from... a maggot? Pupa stage three. English. I'm not an entomologist either. It's the third stage of larva metamorphosis. This guy's been dead seven days. But what if I told you this forensic science actually isn't science at all? The use of the word science is is sort of misleading. Aside from DNA, which is actually based in science. That's Jordan Smith. She's a senior reporter at The Intercept, where she mostly covers faulty forensics and wrongful convictions. Everything else that's considered forensic science is basically made-up stuff by law enforcement. At one point, there was a worry from social scientists that there would be a CSI effect in courtrooms across the country, where this idea of forensic science would sway jurors in favor of forensic evidence, even if the forensic evidence isn't actually legit. Fun fact, that didn't come to pass. (laughs) But the point is, is that like these shows sort of popularized the myth behind forensic sciences. She remembers an episode of Law & Order SVU where they were investigating a murder that happened in a car that was rigged with an explosive. And in the car, they find a mosquito. And that mosquito, turns out, bit the person who rigged the car. So, of course, they're going to extract the DNA from the mosquito to find the culprit. Literally, like, ten minutes later, they're like, we have a DNA result! It's just all sort of a little bonkers. Yeah, some of these plot lines can get a little ridiculous. On CSI Vegas, the iconic Gail Grissom, a forensic entomologist for Vegas PD, is known for showing up at crime scenes and swiping his finger on evidence. Like in this scene where he bends down and swipes a yellow substance off of a grocery cart and tastes it. That's sanitary. Mustard. Or just sticking what we presume to be human remains in his mouth. What are you doing? Bones are porous. They stick to the tongue. This doesn't stick. It's a piece of rock. Licking bones and rocks or whatever aside, in 2003, CSI was the most watched show on American TV. It was also the most watched show in the world six times from 2006 to 2015. It won numerous primetime Emmys. And even though the show ended in 2015, you'd never know if you turned on your TV. It airs in syndication on USA Network, Oxygen, Sci-Fi, and Court TV Mystery. USA Network alone has aired reruns for over a decade. That's all to say, these shows continue to impact us. And it would be bad enough if scripted TV continued to peddle this pseudoscience and legitimize something that's putting people behind bars wrongfully. But, of course, it extends to true crime as well. And that's what this episode is about. How a true crime documentary series has wrapped our culture on forensics. So much so, attorneys are looking at its cases to exonerate those who were wrongfully convicted. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith, and this is Spectacle True Crime. Dun, dun. 
Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. As I was saying, forensic science isn't just popularized on scripted TV, on shows like CSI or Law & Order SVU. It's dramatized in true crime, too, on shows described as documentaries. Probably the most well-known culprit is the long-running series Forensic Files. Even if you've never watched an episode of Forensic Files, you've likely scrolled past it. The program has been on TV in some iteration for nearly 20 years. The show originally called Medical Detectives debuted in 1996 and ran until 2011, with more than 400 episodes broadcast. In 2020, HLN rebooted the show. The show has a format and style all its own. Each episode follows a specific case that experts say was solved thanks to forensic evidence. The details of the case, like killings or kidnappings, are dramatized with reenactments. The lab scenes look like they're shot in a nightclub with all this weird, colorful lighting. I mean, honestly, CSI fans might say it looks like CSI. And you wouldn't be wrong, because apparently the creators of the show looked at forensic files for creative inspiration. It's tailored to sort of amplifying forensic science as this, like, infallible crime-fighting tool. And in so doing, like, really just sort of leaves out really important plot points. There's an episode that really irks Jordan. It's from season 11, episode 34, Small Town Terror. It's a really good example of how Forensic Files works, generally. So, to set it up, this episode is all about a series of bombings back in 1991 in Grand Junction, Colorado. Pipe bombs, to be specific, that are left around town. And two people die, a third is injured but lives... And they just really don't know. It seems random. They're like, okay, we have a bomber on our hands. Apparently one of the cops, according to Forensic Files, is like, I don't know, maybe there's some disgruntled employees from the convention center or something since all these bombs are left around the convention center. Uh, Forget also that this is actually a pretty small town, so the convention center isn't that far away from anything. But whatever. Anyway, so they ask the people at the convention center, like, Uh, Do you have any disgruntled employees? And they're like, yeah, there's this, like, weird guy that, like, used to work here. I thought I would bring my producer Joanna Clay in to really dig into this episode. So the guy's name is James Genrick. He was a dishwasher at the convention center in his 20s and... 
seemed like kind of an oddball. And there was one that at least stood out in their mind that was a former employee, if I recall, who didn't quite fit with the group. So they're like, ooh, disgruntled dishwasher? Let's check out this guy. And they talk about Genrik fitting a profile. So he was a loner. He had a couple of arrests, but never served time. He's like this hapless dude. He's had some problems in his past. He wants a girlfriend. He can't find one. He's, he lives in a boarding house, like in a room. And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, this guy kind of looks like a loser, right? Genrik denied involvement from the jump, but he fully cooperated with police. He let them search his room at the boarding house. Where we should point out, I think, that they found no evidence of bomb making, no powder or residue or anything like that. And then what really seals the deal is they get a a call from this woman at the local bookstore who, according to forensic files, James Genrick comes in and asks for a, wants to order a book that is about bomb making. Story goes, she refused to sell it to him and he had a fit, like lost his mind in the store. And then they're like, oh yeah, who else would want to buy a book about explosives except for a guy who's going to explode people? I am absolutely living for Jordan's energy right now. But I do want to say that the show does leave out the title of the book in question, and that was The Anarchist Cookbook. Which has been around for 50 years. It was like published in like 1971 at the height of the Vietnam War as like a, basically a counterculture sort of book recipe for everything, including how to make LSD. So they started following him, and they searched his room again. The second search, we didn't find any pipe ends, galvanized pipes, uh, gunpowder, things of that nature. And since you can't see the visuals, this guy's room is a mess. He's not the best housekeeper, let's just put it that way, right? So there's like clothes, and there's just mail, and cans, and like, like a fan, like weird pieces of electronics, and shit everywhere. So the very idea that this guy has this like disaster area of a room and yet somehow was able to like, first of all, build bombs in that space. I did not see a square inch of space where he could actually have built a bomb, but being that as it may, the very idea that he could somehow through this mound of crap, get rid of any sign that there was ever explosives material in the room is just, it's, it's, it's ludicrous, right? It's completely ludicrous. They end up finding electrical circuits and a toolbox. And they decide to send the tools off to an expert. Not just any expert, a quote-unquote forensics expert who had been studying tool marks left on fragments of the bombs. And they say, see if you can match these. Well, lo and behold, the forensic expert comes back and decides that there is evidence on bomb fragments that match three separate tools that Genrick had. So there were two sets of pliers, a regular set of pliers and needle nose pliers, and then there was a wire stripper. O'Neill found the same number of striations with the same thickness on the test marks from Genrick's pliers and from one of the bomb's end caps. When compared under a microscope, It was a perfect match. A perfect match. They say they matched a tool mark, one of Genrick's tools, to a mark on a piece of wire that was one one one-hundredth of an inch big. And they conclude that this is such damning evidence 
that clearly he did this and they charged him with two counts of first degree murder and a bunch of bomb related charges. The toolmark examiner, John O'Neill, actually says the notion of it being another tool would almost be to the point of beyond probability. Wow. You're just basically saying that's the only wire stripper like in the entire country that could have matched this. It's like, what? How could you say his pliers or his wire cutters are different than any other plier or wire cutter that anyone has that's the same brand or the same type? I mean, you can get those everywhere. Here's the thing. I can tell you that in my house, for a variety of reasons, we have three pairs of wire cutters and wire strippers. Okay, three. These are ubiquitous tools that, like, so many people have. But I have to say, to really understand where this goes left is you have to understand toolmark analysis. So in the Genrick example, you have a pipe bomb, and they had metal caps on the end. And they could tell... It looked like somebody used a pair of pliers, basically, to tighten the caps on the end of the bombs. And when they found fragments on some of those end caps, they found little striations that looked like the teeth on a pair of pliers that you might use when you were going to tighten something. So they're like, ooh, that's valuable. Maybe we can find a pair of pliers that made that. I mean, I think it's safe to say you can find pliers at any hardware store in America if you buy a basic toolkit, like when I bought one for my apartment, I mean, pliers are in there alongside a screwdriver and a hammer. But regardless, they're like, okay, this is key evidence. So this expert got some scraps of metal, used Genrick's pliers on the metal, and looked at the marks on the metal compared to the marks on the pipe bomb fragments. There are a couple problems with this. Number one, we don't know how the person who made the pipe bomb was holding their pliers, right? So handheld tools are used in a variety of different ways. You could be holding it, the angle you're coming at, the pressure you're applying, the number of times you sort of hesitate or tweak or, you know, all these things are variable, right? So who knows how that analyst made his, but we also don't know that that's how it made the bomb was actually holding his pliers or her pliers. Equal opportunity here. And then they have the gall to instead say, well, I match this to this. And then to use language, which is roundly criticized these days, which is to claim a match to a specific certainty. So like in exclusion of all other pliers in the world, it's basically a level on which they testified in the Genrick case was essentially that no other tools in the world could have made this mark. And that is completely without basis in fact. It has no scientific validity whatsoever. We don't know how many pliers are out there and how many would make the same mark. There's no fundamental truth. For example, this type of plier, you know, produces this mark on this metal. And that testimony is what got Genrick convicted. This claim that his tools left unique marks that connected him to the crime. Genrick was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and a dozen other bomb-related charges. He got a life sentence without the possibility of parole, and to this day, he maintains his innocence. Well, I got a lawyer still working on my appeal, so I think that's my best hope right now. But hopefully somebody will see this and come forward and say that, you know, I know the guy that did it or something like that, but never know. The Innocence Project is working with Genrick, hoping to overturn his conviction due to faulty toolmark evidence. 
In the last decade, consensus has started to change around its acceptance. The National Academy of Sciences issued a report in 2009 challenging forensic techniques aside from DNA as scientifically illegitimate. The Mesa County DA stands by Genrick's conviction to this day. It is neither valid nor reliable and never should be allowed in court. But this kind of testimony goes on day in, day out, in not only in firearms or not only in tool mark cases, but in all kinds of forensic cases. And it's deeply problematic. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. There's a particular case that's commonly pointed to as a turning point in forensic science circles. It's a case you're familiar with. The 1979 trial of Ted Bundy. To this day, you go to forensic conferences and the old timers are around. They're like, you know, I was involved in the Ted Bundy case. And they still like talk about it. You know, I was involved in Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy. And you're like, oh my God, enough already. Dentists are the biggest braggarts because Bundy's trial mainstreamed forensic dentistry, or to be more specific, bite mark analysis. Bite marks are probably the purest form of junk science still in existence today. That's Chris Fabricant. He's the director of strategic litigation at the Innocence Project and author of the book, Junk Science in the American Criminal Justice System. When I decided to devote a chapter to Ted Bundy in my book, I went back and I started reading every article that had ever been written about him in every newspaper, beginning with the disappearances in the Seattle area, all the way to the Chi Omega murders at Florida State University in 1977. And what was really shocking to me was how little evidence they ever had against Bundy. There was one woman who survived an attack in Colorado who had a description of a guy who looked like a Ken doll. Authorities thought he fit the profile. Plus, he was in the area and had gone on to commit another murder. But they didn't have any evidence to tie him to the Chi Omega murders, which were the murders in that 1979 trial. Nita Neary was one of the sorority sisters who saw an individual leaving the sorority house out the front door shortly after the murders. But she identified under hypnosis a Mr. Eng, E-N-G, who was an employee of the Chi Omega sorority at the time and totally innocent. We should also point out, unsurprisingly, that hypnosis also isn't legit. Thank goodness that he wasn't wrongfully convicted for these, but he certainly could have been. 
And well, it was only after Bundy's arrest and Miss Neary was shown a photograph of Bundy and say, oh, is it this guy? And so, yeah, that's the guy. But they had no direct evidence. They had no fingerprints. They didn't even have hair microscopy. They had no confession. What they did have was an injury, what they call a bite mark on the butt of one of the victims. I've seen it. Could be anything, you know what I mean? But the like most of these bite marks... And the sheriff, Catarsis, that had been recently elected, who had very, very little law enforcement experience, he was only 31 years old, but he had been teaching the latest crime-solving techniques at the local community college and was familiar with this new so-called forensic odontology, which is a fancy word for forensic dentistry. Dentists were claiming, because of their proximity to teeth, that they could identify bite marks and match them to people. Remember, the evidence was totally made up. No scientific research to back it up. But then months and months went by. Massive media pressure to bring an indictment that everybody thought that Ted Bundy had done this. How are you not charging him? Because they didn't have any evidence. And so he contacted Dick Suveron, who's one of the founding fathers of the field. Dick Suveron famously took Ted Bundy's dental mold in Ted Bundy was whisked out of jail in the middle of the night and taken to a dental shop for that to be done. You could, there are pictures of it on the internet. You can see him doing it with his bare fingers. As you all know, Bundy's trial was a spectacle. It was the first to be televised, and the dentists, well, they got attention. And then the case ends up rising and falling on bite mark evidence. And just like that, bite mark evidence was mainstream. And as late as 2014, I was litigating an evidentiary hearing here in New York City. And they were still talking about Ted Bundy today, right? Because it's the most important case. And it just shows the power of the media and popular culture to drive junk science into the mainstream. And in the decades since, it's become a classic example for forensic scientists, but also an outlier. Because Bundy was a college-educated, conventionally attractive white man. But most of junk science, well, it's used on poor people. And we should make the caveat here, poor people in criminal cases. Junk science was barred from civil litigation. Yeah, you heard that right. And the other kind of seminal moment in the use of scientific evidence in our legal system was a case called Daubert in the United States Supreme Court. And what that case was really all about was the civil defense bar, so corporate defendants primarily, that had been successfully sued for the last 20, 30 years, and a lot of it based on speculative evidence that was masquerading as scientific evidence. You know, some of it was righteous, but a lot of it wasn't. The civil defense bar wanted a new legal standard. They wanted to apply basic scientific principles to examine how reliable evidence is. And it worked. It essentially became the law of the land with exceptions in California and New York. However, as of 2012, California has a similar standard. But on the criminal side... Nothing changed and that judges were still accepting evidence that had no basis in science, that had led to wrongful convictions, that the National Academy of Sciences had found to be lacking a scientific basis. So you're thinking, why? Why are criminal courts continuing to accept junk science? Well, we talked about who that science is proffered against, right? Poor people, poor people of color primarily. And we have demonstrated in this country for 400 years what we care and how much we care 
about the quality of justice meted out to marginalized communities in our country. If we cared, it would be easy. And there's so many easy fixes that you could be done free. They're also powerful prosecution tools. Judges typically are making decisions not about systemic issues, but about individual cases. And they're very, very reluctant to take a tool away from a prosecutor that's useful for getting convictions. Period. End of story. One of the scary aspects of criminal proceedings today is that a lot of these techniques are peddled by for-profit companies. They're not in the business to advance justice. They're in the business to make money. And then you have law enforcement paying these experts, like the ones we heard from in that Forensic Files episode. So admitting it's not legit also means admitting they're wasting taxpayer money. Oh, and remember, most of these companies are also run by ex-law enforcement. Some forensic circles are starting to re-examine their methods, but there's still a long way to go. New pseudoscience is being introduced. Digital techniques like facial recognition technology or license plate readers, which haven't shown to be reliable. And the stakes are high. I have four clients on death row right now. They're all put there by junk science. So I couldn't be more urgent about it. And it's always timely, you know what I mean? And especially timely with the ever-increasing use of scientific evidence in criminal trials. Next time on Spectacle. Why true crime has a very devoted demo. White ladies. There's not a ton of data, but it's kind of in your face. I mean, if you go to true crime conferences, watch true crime shows, or listen to true crime podcasts, you'll notice it's very white. And it makes sense. Most of true crime has been stories told by white people about white victims. But the problem is, when these shows are telling stories about violent crime and society through a predominantly white lens, well... It's coloring our ideas of criminal justice whether we realize it or not. Like how we view victimhood. Stay sexy and don't get murdered. (laughs) That's kind of the slogan of the show and is also kind of the thesis of their book that by being not only sexy but self-confident, you can prevent horrible things from happening to you. How we view policing. Oh, it's okay to call the police. I mean... Who says it's okay? (laughs) I mean, for whom is it okay to call the police? It's just not the full picture. If we try to understand crime, if we try to understand victimhood, if we try to understand our system of punishment through a white-on-white crime lens where white women are centered, we don't understand it. That's next time. Spectacle True Crime is a production of Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by yours truly. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Liz Sanchez is our associate producer. Sound design by Hans Dale Shee. Original music by Asha Ivanovich. Additional cues from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our fact checker is Stephen Crichton. Special thanks to Carla Green, Shara Morris, and Catherine St. Louis. 
I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week.